Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So this week, we're talking about chapter 18, which is the second part of Sensations and Sensations. It's the second part of Sensations and Feelings. This is feelings educable by parents. I heard someone use the word educable today. I was listening. You said it educable. 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 Whatever. I I was listening to uh, Ben Shapiro's podcast and he played a he played a sound bite from some CNN, NBC, ABC person. I don't I don't remember the guy's name, but. He was asking if someone was, would be able, would be educable. And the person he was talking to, the presidential candidate he was talking to was like, educ, what? (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, you don't know that word. And the, the host had to step back and explain what the word meant. To a presidential candidate? To one of the presidential candidates, yeah. It was kind of funny. Wow. Well, here, the question is, you know, did it just throw them for a loop and because they've been so busy? Or do they just not know that? Not know the word. And I could understand not knowing the word because how often does the word educable? I don't know. Google has an analytic that will show how often and frequently it's used over the years. That'd be interesting to look at, but not right now. Okay. So, yeah, anyway. Feelings educable by parents. And educable apparently is a use, is a word still used today. Although rarely. Although rarely. So to 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 tag off of all of the things that she says about feelings here, um, she's using a section of a the Tentern Abbey poem by William Wordsworth, where he talks about the fact that when he remembers something when he remembers a scene from Tintern Abbey, it brings him tranquil restoration in his thoughts. And she actually um, uses a couple of very high praise words for his insight. She says that the poet is absolutely right. And she says he is exquisitely right. So that this this poem made a big impression on her. Yeah, it, clearly it did. The first half of this chapter is her pondering, pondering the meaning of this poem and its feelings and what what does that mean for people. And what implications and things can you do, applications can you use from it? To which, cer- which is where poetry just, I it's again, I, I don't get it, where you read something and somebody goes, oh, this, 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 and this, and this. <laughs> and I'm like, you did what? Yeah. <laughs> How... How did you jump from A to like F? And I'm just, I'm going, right. it, it means A. <laughs> Possibly B. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's why I'm reading poetry with the kids and we're starting with, what is it? Robert Louis Stevenson? I, I don't know who you're reading. The Children's Garden of Verses. Okay. I'm starting with the Children's Garden of Verses. Well, it makes sense to so start. So they're easy. <laughs> one, one, they're easy, and two, it gets them used to 
the the rhythm and and rhyme of the poetry. It gets them used to listening to poetry or reading, as the case may be, so that as they continue, they it's a normal thing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, this what what I was saying is that this chapter seems to break down into two pretty distinct sections. You have the first majority of it from pages 191 through 199 where she's talking about the poem and what it means for people and specifically children but definitely people because she's looking at children as they grow what are they going to do with those feelings and then halfway through page 199 And then for the next four pages, she goes into a little bit more practical application for parenting and how to, how to parent for educating feelings in your children. Okay. So it, it seemed like it broke down into those two sections because I kept reading through this first half going, okay, but what am I supposed to do with my child? Gotcha. And she was just talking about. Well, the feelings and, and this is what feelings do and this is what they feel like and that's what they are. And, and, and as we're going through this, great. That's, that's great that those are feelings, but, but what do I do? And so, so that's what it seemed like is background and then application. Well, then she starts in with almost going back to sensations and, and talking about, you know, well, we talked about sensations being something that you feel, touch, taste, see, Something you. Something that tangibly acts upon you. Mm-hmm. And you, you physically feel it. As opposed to sensations of fear or sensations of pleasure. So you. Sensations fi- have their origins and impressions received by the organs of sense. So you physically sense it. Mm-hmm. And those are the sensations. Correct. So then she starts talking about, you know. Well, yes, we have sensations that are immediate, but we also have reflected sensations is what she talks about it as, where your first impression has made such an impression that you can pull it back again and experience it again. Hmm. And this immediately brought to mind PTSD. That's true. Because in a negative way, it is a reflected sensation. Yeah. It has made such an impact on the person's brain that the moment something happens, whether it's a car backfiring or someone shouting or fireworks, it immediately pulls you back to that place where you had that sensation. I hadn't put that together, but yeah. And and again, that's a negative side, but all of these have negatives and positives. She talks about that. She talks about it in in a little bit. But if if that's the way that it it can work and we see that, even though that's a that's a negative instance, that means that there can be a positive instance of the same thing with the same veracity mm-hmm. where, yes, someone someone suffering from PTSD senses those negative things and it puts them back into that into that place. But someone who had a positive experience can can have a can have that trigger happen and it puts them back into that positive place. 
Mm-hmm. And that's you're right. That is what she talks about with with Wordsworth here is that as he's going through the city, as he's uh, as he's see. in lonely rooms and mid the den of towns and cities. Yeah, he hears the chord struck by the Y in its flow, blah blah blah, and it 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 knocks him back into that into that prior memory mm-hmm. and into that prior feeling right sensation that that sensation that which sensation. leads to a feeling yeah of well-being of an elixir of life and that's why she goes on to talk about how these are so very important well she she kind of pulls back and says hey by the way uh what is it parenthetical insertion of my thoughts this is why we need to fill them with a storehouse of memories mm. and how do we do that we have to make sure that they do look, listen, touch, and smell. And how do we make sure that they actually pay attention to these things? You have to do it. We do that. We lead them by example. You have to pay attention to. Dagnab it. I'm not good at paying attention. Nope. There's... Nope. <laughs> There's a time we were walking in Santa Fe through Old Town area, <laughs> hand in hand, just walking along. And I commented, Weren't those such lovely rose bushes we just walked by? He's like, there's rose bushes? <laughs> and there was this whole long row of rose bushes. It had to be just... at least 20 or 30 feet. Yeah. Of like a wall of rose bushes. Yeah. But yeah. All, all you had to do was <laughs> glance to the right slightly, and it was a literal wall of rose bushes. I didn't even notice that they were there. Nope. I... I laughed so hard. And every time that you don't see something. Oh, and then you got to see your cemeteries. Yeah, there was, there were, uh, so when we were living in Virginia, there were just, there were cemeteries in random places. And we were driving on a road that we drove every Sunday for, for, I there think it was probably a solid year that we had driven that road. When driving down the road, I went, oh, hey, there's a cemetery right there. And Kristen looked at me and was like, yeah. <laughs> well, I just noticed it. They must have built it last night. They just put it in. <laughs> to his credit, he was the one driving. But still, a year. Yeah, I I don't notice a lot of things, which is a, a drawback on me, especially when I'm driving. I, I watch the road and I just drive. So she gives an example of what not to do. <laughs> she says, yes, this these parents are conscientious and they want their child to learn and they want her to seize the moment and the time. So to not waste any time. The governess and her did school on the road, which is awesome. But it wasn't applicable and appropriate to the cir- the circumstances and surroundings. In the story. So they the, the little girl traveled in Italy with her parents. And they were so concerned with schooling that the the little girl and her governess stayed in the carriage in Paris doing school Italy, all day. In Italy. Excuse me. They didn't say where. I guess Paris, Paris is in France. Paris is in France. So they're traveling in Italy where there's plenty of stuff to experience and look at and see and talk about. And learn. And notice and learn. And... They are probably doing the counties of England. They're doing the counties of England. Yeah, that that made me chuckle because I, I, I caught that I on the second sarcasm. or third. Right, <laughs> I caught that on the second or third read throughs. 
they're probably doing the counties of England. It's like, well, yeah, that makes sense because you're driving around the countryside and you talk about it as you go. They're in Italy. <laughs> she sarcastically said they're learning about England, which is a couple countries over. <laughs> and it's just what's next on the agenda. It's what's next on the agenda. Uh, there was a post on Instagram. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it real quick. The first time I've opened up Instagram and looked at it in a long time. I've been really bad at doing anything on there. We are technically on social media. Technically. We're technically on Instagram, which means we post to it. And I try and I respond. I am on Facebook. I try and respond when people when people either mention us or or uh, talk about us. I do I do try and respond. John is in charge of our Instagram. We see how well that's gone. I am in charge of Facebook. And nobody does Twitter. <laughs> it just gets posted there. I post to it. And randomly, we have people that follow us on Twitter. And I don't quite understand. Because I don't do anything. Oh, it was it was posted by the account Charlotte Mace, or Homeschool Quotes. It's a quote by Tamara Chilver, who, who's Grace for the Homeschool Mom. I don't know if that's a blog or whatever. But she said, homeschooling is about doing life with your family, not doing lesson plans. Reset your thinking to seize every opportunity that will make an impact on your child's life for eternity. The best lessons are found in real life. Or for you computer people out here, IRL. (laughs) And I thought that was interesting because that's what Charlotte Mason is talking about here is, and that's exactly what you just said, is lesson plans are good. Lesson plans can be helpful, but you need to be able and willing and excited to burn your lesson plan in a fire because you're doing something else that's cool. Yeah. So if you're taking a trip to Italy during the school year, burn your lesson plan and go study Italy. No, just say pause. Don't burn it. You can use it later. (laughs) But fire. (laughs) But 18th century, no computers. Oh, that's true. So she talks about Once again, how education in children should be thoughtfully subordinated to the education given by nature. So that's her her parenthetical little tagline there and comes back to, well, to continue our study of this amazingly (laughs) accurate. She does. I missed that. I didn't realize it until we were talking about it because there's a section here I want to talk about that wasn't quite there. And I was like, but we've got this section here. Oh, she just kind of put it in. Anyways, she goes on to talk about the physical effects of remembering the scene. So I started doing a Google search because that's where all my research starts. And let's go back to high school anatomy and physiology real quick. Talking about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system it prepares the body for a physical activity and is referred to as the fight or flight response. Okay. So it does physical things to you. And in today's world, we are in a very sympathetic nervous system, SNS world, where everything is what's the next thing, what's the next activity, what's the next mm. big thing to do. And staying in that frame of mind is not healthy. It's like keeping your your stress levels constantly high, even though that's a norm. 
-hmm. having your cortisol high is not healthy. Right. You need to pull it down. And the way to pull it down is by engaging your parasympathetic nervous system, your PNS. It's the rest and digest frame of mind where it relaxes the body and it inhibits or slows many high energy functions. So we've got the two systems, mm -hmm. the SNS and the PNS. And one of the ways that this article I found was talking about how to engage your PNS is to think about positive emotions. And hmm. you indirectly stimulate different parts of your brain to give you a positive feeling, more relaxed sort, like contentment, gratitude, loving kindness, tranquility. And so you work to engage those and your SNS system goes down and your, PS, your PNS system goes up, which is healthy. Interesting. And so extrapolating what this guy is saying, it is Rick Hansen. He does wisebrain.org. So in addition to this positive emotion, it brought to mind what she's ex exactly what she's talking right. about. Yeah. Pulling up a positive image in your head, a positive sensation to physically and intentionally calm yourself down to bring you into a state of more relaxation. Interesting. And she's talking about it with, you know, the felt in the blood and felt along the heart where the nerve fibers are relaxing and it brings an elixir of life. So would you say... Or would you be willing to say that that's a type of meditation? Sure. Or that through meditation you could do that? That's one of the exercises this guy has. Interesting. He's got breathing, lowering heart rate, meditation, relaxation, mindfulness of the body, yawning, and positive emotion as ways to engage your, your parasympathetic nervous system. That's fascinating. I, meditation is definitely something that is coming into the forefront of American thinking. Almost as as people are moving away from religion, they're trying to seek some way to center themselves. And so that's interesting that that is a way of moving away from the fight or flight sensations and into the resting mode, mm -hmm. into your resting mode. Yeah. Because because that's exactly what people talk about, is we're so inundated with everything that's happening that we can never shut off. Yeah. So she keeps on going and talks about how to do it and how we are supposed to help preserve the acuteness of the child's perceptions in order to store memories with images of delight. And the same guy has a, a thing about how to take things in. And how to fill yourself back up emotionally. He said you have to look for those positive moments. Take a few extra seconds to savor that experiment, experience and let it sink deeply into your emotional memory banks. It's as simple as that. As simple as stopping to feel it. Hmm. To be in it. Negative experiences get lodged almost instantly 
to help us survive. Sure. But positive experiences are not recorded the same way. We have to hold them in our awareness for some seconds so that they actually sink in. Huh. And he, in this article, he's talking about how day-to-day experiences are stressful or upsetting, which are pretty typical for parents of young children. I can attest to that. John can attest to that. (laughs) Yep. Even when there are also lots of wonderful, sweet times with the kids. But because we don't stop and we don't stop and take in those wonderful times. They're crowded out by the negative ones that are immediately lodged in our brain. Right. Which Which happens to me. I mean, I tell you all the bad things that happened in the day when you come home. mm Mm-hmm. And then in the next breath, you go, but it was, it was overall, it was a pretty good day. And I go, what? Exactly. That doesn't make sense. Which now that I'm thinking about that makes sense as to why. Right. Because the negative things, they lodge in your brain instantly. And it makes sense that they do. Thinking about the way that humans have, I'm going to say evolved and the way that humans have evolved over time, I guess more technology as technology is involved. And adapted. And adapted, yeah. We we went from having very little tools and having very primitive defenses against things. And so when there was a negative experience, you had to be able to react instantly. Especially if you had that negative experience again. Well, yeah, and that's what I mean is if you – uh, you know, say for instance, you're you're hiking in the in the deserts of New Mexico, and you have a run in with a rattlesnake. You're going to remember that sensation of running into a rattlesnake, who could be very deadly to you. So the next time you run into that same rattlesnake or a different rattlesnake, your body knows how to react already, and you react before you even know what you're doing, mm-hmm. because it's a it's a survival instinct. Mm-hmm. Your body just does it. So. Uh, that that makes sense. And it's not as important to survival, just survival, not not fully living or fully experiencing life, but just not being dead. It's important that your body knows how to react to negative things. Mm-hmm. So that makes that makes perfect sense. He goes on to talk about a few specific things, and he says it's a great way to help all children but particularly those whose temperament is either spirited or anxious. Spirited kids tend to zoom along so fast to the next thing before they register that positive experience. So they're just, they just plow ahead. Right. Regardless, the of, next. regardless of what happened. Right. But nerve or anxious kids need the positive inner resources of reassurance and encouragement that come from soaking in those good feelings. They need that spot where they can pull back right. and have that good feeling. And so, one, you notice the positive events and let them become those positive experiences for you. And two, you savor that experience. Try to make it last. Try to feel it in your body. And he gives the example of tell children to hide it in a treasure chest in their cell, in themselves. Which immediately brought me to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who treasured right. and pondered these things in her heart. Again, a form of meditation. Right. That's what she was doing. And she was savoring that experience. It was when the prophet spoke to her. This yeah. child yeah. will be there. When the wise men came to to worship Jesus, she treasured these things in her heart. Because they were such big, crazy, insane, good things. That she didn't want to forget. 
And and he also says, you know, you have to register this experience deeply in your emotional memory. Consciously let it sink into you. Well, and the other thing, uh, the thing I just thought of is today, in, in that same scenario, if Jesus were born today, Mary would have taken a lot of pictures and videos. And so she would have been able to remember it using an external device. An external aid. Where then the only thing she had to her was her own memory. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a cue that we can take is that, yeah, it's good to take pictures and it's good to take a video and snap a selfie or whatever to, to help you remember that thing. What's more beneficial is for you to internalize it, though, because then you'll be able to recall it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. You won't have to be looking through your phone looking for those things. You won't have that crutch. Right. Which, again, it can be fun to look through pictures. And it can be very good, too. That can that can bring up very good feelings. Mm-hmm. But how much better would it be to just be able to do it? Yeah. And I, I think that goes back to what she's talking about a lot, where about being a observant person, about being a conscientious person, about internalizing these things that are lacking even in her day. She was last chapter she talked about, or it was a long time ago, actually, that she talked about the, the child who went through school and didn't know anything. I think it was a girl. All she learned was her needlepoint. Mm, right. Well, that was a while ago. It was like, I'm thinking like chapter four. It's on the left page at the top. Page 34. Top left. Well done. That's how my brain works. Which is chapter four. <laughs> Uh, a girl of a yep. girl of 15 who had spent two years at school without taking part in a single lesson, and this by the expressed desire of her mother, who wished all her time and all her pains to be given to fancy needlework. I feel really good about that. Top left. <laughs> well done. So, where were we with that? Uh, bringing awareness to education and awareness to uh learning and life instead of floating through it yeah so her her follow-up or her uh summation of this is she says if mere sensations are capable of doing so much for our happiness our mental refreshment and our physical well-being both at the time of their reception and for an indefinite number of times afterwards it follows that there is no small part of our work as educators to preserve the acuteness of the children's perceptions and to store their memories with images of delight. So that's the second thing she told us to do. The first is that they do look, listen, touch, and smell. Right. The second is that they are acute. Their perceptions are acute. So it's... That's that's the second thing. I think she's got another third thing. That's why I brought that up. We'll get there. Yeah. So then she moves into distinguishing sensations and feelings and being a person who can distinguish between those two things actively, I guess. Mm-hmm. She says very few persons are capable of discriminating between the sensations and the feelings produced by an image recovered by some train of association. 
And she talks about she has she has this phrase here, the man of feeling. She says, which is actually a book. I was I was wondering if it was a book or a poem. I was going to leave that to you, though. It's a novel from 1771 by Scottish author Henry Mackenzie. It's a sentimental novel. Well, anyway, she says the man of feeling is a person of no account. If he still exists, he keeps in the shade being aware through a certain quickness of perception, which belongs to him, that any little efflorescence proper to his character would be promptly reduced to pulp by some wielder of a sledgehammer. The man of feelings is a is a person who, who can't discriminate feelings and sensations. He feels everything, and everything is felt to the nth degree. Mm. And someone who feels everything to the nth degree is someone who can't do anything, can't exist in society. A person begins by being oversensitive, hysteria supervenes, perhaps melancholia, an utterly spoiled life. And that's what we're seeing in today's youth. Yeah. Our our kids have learned to be coddled. And by kids, I mean, you know, anywhere from high school to mid-20s. They've learned to be hyper aware of their own feelings. Anytime anybody does anything that offends them or offends those sensibilities, then they have the right to lash out with whatever force they deem necessary to punish that person who who affronted them. Um, I was listening to a, a journalist by the name of Tim Poole. He, he's a he's a YouTube um, video journalist, and he also puts out a podcast. And he was talking about a Democratic liberal convention that happened. And at this convention, it's a it's a group of people who are all super entrenched in the um, the the woke culture and woke in in uh, parentheses. Well, at this conference, they didn't clap because clapping is loud and it can it can offend people's delicate sensibilities. So they did the the jazz hands, the uh, the sign language sign, clapping. sign language clapping, and. At one point, he played a clip of someone who got up and was like, hey, we need to keep the chatter down because I'm a hyper-aware individual. And and whenever anybody's chattering, I have a hard time paying attention. And so you need to stop chattering so I can pay attention. And he, he said the word guys. He said, I would I would appreciate it if you guys would would stop that. And then someone else stood up and said, we need to make sure that we're using proper pronouns and we're not. We're not offending anyone's sensibilities by only using masculine pronouns. And so it was a giant conference of people trying not to be offended by anything and anyone and making sure that everybody else wasn't offending them. Wow. Right? How how can you function? I don't know because people do offensive things all the time. And you've got to be able to know how to deal with those feelings that come about because of their offensive actions. Because like we tell our children... Who can you control? Yourself. You can't control anyone other than yourself. That's it. That's all you got. And so if you don't know how to control your own self and your own body and your own feelings and emotions, then well, you're screwed. Yep. So that's uh, that's kind of what she's getting into in The Man of Feelings here. And, and it's becoming a, a very big issue today. And I wonder how much of a big issue it was in her day. Yeah. Because she's bringing it up. 
the the person whose feelings have been permitted to minister to his egotistical consciousness. All things in heaven and earth are felt as they affect his own personality. It's all about me. Yeah. So she, this, I have a, a large section of this next part underlined. The feelings are not sensations because they have no necessary connection with the senses. And they are to be distinguished from the two great affections of love and justice, because feelings are not actively exercised upon any object. They're distinct from the desires, because they demand no gratification, and they're distinguishable from intellectual operations, which we call thought, because thought proceeds from an idea, and it's active, and it arrives at a result. Feelings arrive from perception and are passive and not definitely progressive. Um, there's a, another gal who says sensations are messages from your body to your brain to check in feelings or emotions are messages that start in our brain and move down to our bodies. Interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting that. And she's, she does, um, a lot with thoughts and feelings. Thoughts always precede our feelings. Even when you don't think there's a thought there, there is a thought. Interesting. So then she talks about how feelings have their positive and their negatives, and that feelings are neither moral nor immoral. And that's something Crystal mentioned earlier, is that there are positives and negatives, and we talked about that with PTSD a little bit. What was interesting to me is that the moral or immoral the feelings that you have are the feelings that you have that they, they, they are, it's what you do with those feelings. That is, that is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she talks about connections between unremembered feelings and acts, which was, it was interesting to me. The, the example she brings up is one of music. She says, as when one hears the word Lohengrin, which I am not quite I sure what that is. That Sorry. No, I'm I'm curious. Um, I'm guessing it's a a musical. Lohengrin is a German opera. It was performed in first performed in 1850. So she says, uh, as when one hears the word Lohengrin, and does not wait, as it were, to recover the sensation of musical delight, but just catches a waft of the pleasure which the sensation brought. I get that with with music or movies. One of the things that my brother and I, my brothers and I love to do is quote random movies and the more obscure, the better. And and it's fun. And so at this point, the quote from the movie is less about the movie and more about the experiences that we've had around each other. And that quote, as it came from the movie. Interesting. So you can say a quote, I can say a quote of a movie and and feel all of those feelings without even remembering what movie it's from. Hmm. And honestly, that will happen a lot where we'll say something, laugh about it, joke about it, and then be like, what on earth was that from? <laughs> and we'll spend the next 20 minutes trying to come up with what the heck movie that was from. And and maybe I'm maybe I'm reading this a little bit wrong. I, I'm not quite sure. But but that's that's what I thought of as I was as I was reading this. Well, and talking about that, these these sensations, again, can be either good or bad. And they 
influence you in ways that you don't necessarily understand at the moment. Right. Where if thoughts of good feelings and good thoughts or good remembering, rememberings, recollections come, they give you the feeling to do good things. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is true as well, where as you're feeling down or in the dumps or negative about society, something triggers that and you don't want to do good. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really have much in this next couple of sections. The, um, the one I thought was interesting is she talks about uh, character and being able to discern character. She has this little quote, I do not like you, Dr. Fell. The reason why I cannot tell. Do you have that quote? I do. And this has a funny story attached to it. All right. So it's an epigram by a satirical English poet, Tom Brown from 1680. What happened was he got called to the headmaster's office and was about to be expelled. And he said, you know, you'll give you one more chance. And gave him this Latin epigram where it basically said the same thing. And he on the spot, did it to the headmaster. <laughs> that's why it's Dr. Fell. That's the headmaster's oh, name. Oh, that's the headmaster's name. Yeah. And he stayed in school, actually. <laughs> so he said that in Latin to Dr. In, Fell. In English, translating a Latin epigram. That's funny. And so he not only translated it appropriately, but he made it work in the situation as well. That's hilarious. So... So I do not like you, Dr. Fell. The reason why, I cannot tell. And that's only half of it. I'm sure. Again, intuition. Yeah. She says, it's a feeling we all know well enough and is, in fact, that intuitive perception of character, one of our finest feelings and best guides in life. Oftentimes we get gut feelings about things, about people. Mm -hmm. And it's, in my experience at least, it's pretty good to pay attention to those gut feelings if you're getting an odd vibe from someone chances are good things are goofy hmm. and you should pay attention to that odd vibe which is apt to be hammered out of us by the constant effort to beat down our sensibilities to the explicit and the definite right and it calls to mind mother's intuition as well yeah absolutely um, uh, where it, especially thinking you know something medical Mm -hmm. And something's medically wrong. And the mother's like, no, doc, something is wrong. Something, I don't know what. And then it brought to mind the, the book, Madeline. Um, and Miss Clavel waking up in the middle of the <laughs> night. She goes, something is not something right. Something is not right. I don't know what, but she's afraid of disaster. But Madeline had an appendix. Well, it was after it. And she was like, something's not right. Oh, she that's ran faster and faster, and all the little girls are crying. Yeah. We want our appendix out too. Yeah. Good night, little girls. Thank the Lord you are well. You've read that a couple times, huh? Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one, though. But yeah, it just that that intuition that that out of the back part of your mind, it's a feeling you can't really grasp. And she goes on to talk to this a little bit later, also. Where it's it's fleeting. It is uh, kind of, you you only touch it by a spiritual touch. You you don't contact it. If you contact it, it's gone. Um, that that sixth sense, and that's that's that perception of a feeling. 
it's something that we definitely shouldn't try and tamp down in our children. It's something that we shouldn't try and tamp down in ourselves. Again, it's something we should be aware of. It's something we should be aware of and not allow it to override things and become this this egotistical everything's about you. Mm-hmm. But it is something we need to pay attention to. Yeah. The, in the, the intuitive perception of character. In the same way we talked about the man of feeling. You could take that intuition to its fullest extent and it would be a bad thing because you would see someone get a bad feeling about that someone and never be willing to approach that someone or that situation and always stay away from it and take that to its fullest extent and you're never going to go outside. Yeah. And that's not good. So living somewhere in the middle there, knowing that these these feelings are there but also knowing what it is so you're able to control yourself. So this is where I, I feel like she kind of finishes her, her background. What are feelings and what do they do? What do they look like? And we start moving into instructions. How to modify the character. Yeah. In, in educating the feelings, we modify the character. She starts her this this second section that you're talking about with saying it's a delicate task. The pressing danger of our day is that this delicate task of educating shall be exchanged for the simpler one of blunting the feelings. And this is the almost inevitable result of a system where training is given in mass. Not necessarily, but most probably. It reminds me of a friend I had in high school his his dad's famous line was uh he only had one feeling and that was it well it was kind of a joke for his dad but it was something his dad had to deal with he he didn't have a he didn't have a touch on his feelings and it caused some issues in their in in his and his wife's marriage i learned later in life well my friend his son has had to deal with these same things and when he now as an adult is dealing with situations his primary response is to get angry at things and what he didn't realize is that anger was the only way he knew to express his feelings because that's all he had been taught as a kid Hmm. and so as he's gotten older and he's gone to therapy and he started getting in touch with his feelings he's realized oh it's not just that i'm angry it's that i'm hurt or it's that I'm confused, or it's that I'm that I'm truly angry. It's the digging deeper under that and and why what feelings am I actually feeling? And he's had to work really, really hard as an adult to be able to feel those feelings because they were pressed down on him as a kid. And he was never allowed to work through those feelings. He was just told that that they you shouldn't feel feelings. Hmm. So, uh, you know, a, a story on the negative side of there that, yeah, it's super important for us as parents to teach the feeling of feelings, which, as she said here, is the modification of the character. So uh, she says the perfect bloom of the feelings can only be preserved under quite judicious individual culture and therefore necessarily devolves upon parents. So it's the parent's job 
to teach the child how to feel feelings. And how, how to deal with them. Yeah, and how, how to deal how with to them. How to understand what's going on. And she goes in to talk about you, you need tact for this, mm-hmm. whether it's to confront something or to deal with it gently and kindly. And to be aware of those words that we use, to be aware of what we want to stimulate, what feelings we want to stimulate, what feelings we want to repress. And then we communicate that feeling by sympathy and being in tune with the spirits of our children allows us to do that. Where we we feel a feeling and then they feel that feeling from us Mm -hmm. to where where it's... It's almost intangible, but it's definitely visible, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it goes on, she goes on to talk about that these two different feelings or the, the, the two different habits, an appreciative habit of feeling and a depreciative habit change a person's being mm-hmm. and that changes their entire outlook. Once well, she has a line here. And I don't know how much, I don't know how much she was meaning this the way I read it. And so I I could be reading into this a lot differently than she meant. But she says, right after what you were saying about the depreciative habit, she, in parentheses, she says, I dislike, as an example, she says, I dislike this person or this thing. Therefore, I know better or am better than others. I think that's describing the vanity of the ego. Exactly. But that's a that's a feeling mm. in American politics right now that is crippling our political system and our social fabric. Disturbs the tranquility and puts the person out of harmony with himself and with his surroundings. And that would be the surrounding people as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the problem is if someone has a dissenting opinion from you, well, then they must just be bad people. And I'm so much better than them. Yeah. I have this underlined. Feelings are not thoughts to be reasoned down. They're neither moral nor immoral to challenge our praise or blame. And we, we cannot be too reticent in our dealings with them in children, nor too watchfully aware that the least advertence may bruise some tender blossom of feeling. So we, there's, there's, again, it's hard to do much about a feeling more than just helping mold it by example. Mm-hmm. Well, and being aware of them when when your children are feeling things and being there to to feel them with them. Yeah. Persiflage. Have you ever heard that word? No, I looked it up because that was one I felt like I needed to to understand this section. Go ahead. S- sarcastic banter or ribbing is the best I came up with. Yeah, and it's a little, it's good and wholesome, but use it at the right time in the right amounts because it can be so detrimental to children who take things at face value Mm -hmm. until they learn the subtleties and you could really hurt feelings. Yeah. And and I have, I have, I have uh, overstepped my bounds a couple of times. Yeah. One of the things that we do (laughs) as a family tradition at this point is every Saturday morning, I make pancakes and eggs. And one of my favorite things to do is to screw with the children when they ask for topping on the pancake. 
So the children will ask for... Uh, May some, I have strawberry jam, yeah. please? So I take the jar of strawberry jam. I put it on their pancake. And they have learned now that it's a joke. Mm-hmm. But the first time, the first couple times I did it, they were so confused. And, and I had, we had, I had to legitimately work through that thought with them of you asked for jam on your pancake. I put jam on your pancake. Now I'm going to take it off and, and spoon it on or, or whatever spread and spread it out. out and, and it, and it's okay. And I know I hurt feelings at some point with that. I know from an early age, I've had to teach them to go, Daddy. From a very early age. When he's messing with them or joking with them. And I'll, and I'll say it so that they know it's a, that so you're that they joking. Know it so is. I recognize what you're doing and give them the inflection and tone of voice to deal with it. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's a thing that – it's a thing we're starting early with, with Isaac and Lily is, hey, it's time to put your shirt on. Where does your shirt go? And they point to their head. And so oh, we try and put the shirt on our head and they, they laugh because it's hilarious. It's like, no, it doesn't go on your head. It goes on my head or, or take the shirt and try and put it directly onto their belly. And they laugh because it's hilarious. And then they grab the shirt and throw it over their head. Or at one point I was dressing Lily and I put her pants on her head <laughs> and her, and her shirt on her legs. And she about died laughing <laughs> And she had to run around and show everybody that she was wearing her shirt as pants and her pants on her head because it was hilarious. <laughs> and she she was tickled pink with it. But that's something that we've had to work on and work on with them. And work on ourselves to not take it too far. Right. And there there is danger in in that. And and the funny thing is, is I I listen to what they say and she's absolutely right. They they rib each other up one side and down the other because they've started picking up on some of those things. And as they get older, I can only imagine that it's going to get worse and worse. I'm in trouble. Yeah. But as parents, we still need to be careful with it mm-hmm. because it can one, one word too much and it crosses that line Yeah, and it goes from fun to devastating. It's hard to it's a it's a hard line to toe. It is. Which isn't to say not to do it. And and she even says that. She says a little is thoroughly good and wholesome. Then it is. It's great. It's so much fun. So, how do we deal with the feelings of the young? It's a good question. Very delicately. Very very delicately. To ignore wisely is an art. To be able to use tact to say things that won't hurt people, not indiscriminately sympathetic, but also not too blunt a perception. We are between Cecilia and Charybdis. Right. Who are Cecilia and Charybdis? Mythical sea monsters in Greek mythology. Greek mythology puts them on opposite sides of the Strait of Messina between Sicily and the Italy mainland. Sicilia was the rock shoal, described as a six-headed sea monster on the Italian side, and Charybdis was the whirlpool off the coast of Sicily. 
They're regarded as maritime hazards, located close enough to each other that they pose an inescapable threat to sailors. Avoiding one meant passing too close to the other. And so, according to Homer, Odysseus was advised to pass by Sicilia and lose only a few sailors to the uh, six-headed monster, rather than risk the loss of his entire ship in the whirlpool. So it's, you know, between a rock and a hard place, that type of analogy. You're, you're walking a knife's edge. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's why I didn't look it up. So that I could... <laughs> so that- so I could hear that from you. So we must walk, must needs walk humbly and warily in this delicate work. Our only safeguard is to cherish in ourselves. That, that, that threw me when I first read that. Cherish in ourselves the soft, meek, tender soul, sensitive to the touch of God, and able to deal in soft, meek, tender ways with children who are being so fine and delicate mold as they are. Again, we have to work on ourselves. We can only change ourselves to be a better form of who we need to be to teach our children by example, by sympathetic feelings and being with them, how to do this. Because who's the only person that you can control? Yourself. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.